Welcome back to The Long Short. And now for something a little different. Over the past few months, the team at AMA have highlighted our involvement in a couple of Amicus Curi or Amicus Brief. In both cases, AMA felt compelled to get involved, such was the severity of consequences should the motion being supported by the prosecutor in both cases being the US Securities and Exchange Commission passed. And to help understand all of this a little further, I am delighted to be joined by Brian Rickman, an attorney in the Washington, D.C. office of Gibson & Dunn. Brian practices in the firm's litigation department and is a member of the Appellate and Constitutional Law and Administrative Law and Regulatory Practice Groups. He represents clients in high-stakes appellate, administrative law and litigation matters, challenging agency rulemakings and defending against government enforcement actions, including involvement in the case the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission versus Ibrahim al-Magarbi which saw AMA participating in an amicus brief in the past summer. Also joining today's episode from her base in New York is my colleague Susan Rose. Regular listeners of The Long Short will of course recall Susan's star turn in episodes 34 and 38, both compulsive listening. But for now, Brian and Susan, welcome to The Long Short. Thanks, Tom. Hey, it's great to be here. Um, So let's try to unpack this then, and let's start out with you, Susan, if I may. Who or what is an amicus curiae? Certainly. Well, amicus or amicus curiae um, essentially are friends of the court. And uh, specifically, it's a person or persons not party to a case, but who have relevant interests in what's being considered in a case. So they assist an appellate court by offering additional relevant information or arguments in the form of filed briefs to consider before the rulemaking, showing how a decision essentially will impact people other than the parties in the case. And so, Susan, then why then, you know, we mentioned at the top of the episode, why would AMA want to get involved in such a thing? Well, as an advocate for its members, cases whose outcomes could have a significant negative implication for the industry are likely to be of interest for involvement, particularly when the implications appear to be unintended consequences. And both cases that we'll speak of today, Almagarbi and then Blazik later on, are two such cases. Yeah, and so let's let's look at the first one then, Al Magarbi. Um, the other one, as we will come to later in the episode, that's reached its conclusion, and, and you'll be able to um, offer um, an update on that. But the one that's very much in train is the case of Al Magarbi. So, what's the background behind this case? Sure. Well, first, this case is of particular relevance given the SEC's recently proposed rule to expand expand dealer registration requirements to certain fund managers not otherwise required to register as dealers. That's how it popped onto our radar. But in the Almagarbi case, the SEC has argued that any company whose business model is based on the purchase and sale of securities is a dealer required to register with the commission, which is a radically expansive interpretation that, if proven, could ensnare many businesses who purchase and sell securities but are not and have never been securities dealers. So let's bring Brian in now. Brian, we're delighted to have you um, on today's episode. You know, as mentioned, you have extensive experience in representing clients that challenging agency rulemaking. So how did you then end up getting involved in a case about, you know, if I've read this correctly, a 29-year-old student effectively flipping penny stocks? That's a great question. Um, someone like Mr. Al Mugarby, like you said, a, a student trading in penny stocks is not the kind of typical big case you see in this area. Um, typically, when you think of the Securities and Exchange Commission trying to 
um, impact the law, change the law, or develop new rules, you think of big rulemakings. The commission announces what it's doing in advance, and interested parties have an opportunity to participate in the rulemaking. They submit comments and they let their, let their views be known. But that's only one avenue that the SEC can use to make law. The SEC has discretion to file enforcement actions. And in those enforcement actions, the SEC can press theories and urge the courts to adopt theories that in effect would change the law or would expand the law. And I think that's what we're seeing here. In this case, or Al Mugarby case, the commission has brought a theory against a 29-year-old student for trading penny stocks on the theory that due to the volume of his trading activity, he is a broker-dealer and has to register with the commission. And while the case against Mr. Al-Mugarby himself might not be that impactful, the precedent, the, the legal theory the commission is asking the court to adopt could be very impactful across the broader industry. And, and let's expand on that then. Obviously, there's a lot of change in the wind at the moment in the U.S. So how does all of this tie into the proposal on the dealer rule that was put out by the SEC last year? I think it ties in really in in two ways. So first, and I just want to highlight a unique part of that dealer proposal. So in that proposal, the SEC gave a redefinition of what a dealer is. And what's unique about that definition is it's not exclusive. So the SEC lists a number of factors that the commission says now make somebody a dealer. But then at the end, it says, well, you could be a dealer anyway based on the facts and circumstances. And it drops a footnote and it cites to various of these enforcement cases, including the one against Mr. Al Mugarby. So you already see in the rulemaking the commission trying to slip the enforcement theory it's bringing in the Almagarbi case, trying to slip it into the rulemaking. That's one area. And the other area is precedent. So the commission has put forth this rule. And if you look at the comment file, the, the industry participation, I think you see significant criticism of what the SEC is proposing, how it's expanding the conception of, of dealer. And why I think the Almagarbi case is so important is how the court interprets the dealer definition. When the court says what the what the Exchange Act means and what the word dealer means, that could constrain or have an effect on the commission's authority to interpret that in its rulemaking. Yeah, and they singled out this individual. Like I said, he's a 29-year-old, or at the time he was a 29-year-old yeah. college student. You know, would the SEC have taken the same line if this was a more high-profile investor? It's always hard to say, but. This is the first case the commission's brought under, under its new theory. And they have wide discretion, right? They can sue, um, you know, they could pick their targets and pick the order in which they sue people. And really the first case they're trying to test this theory is against a 29-year-old student who was trading penny stocks. And so clearly then, um, Susan, the implications, should such a ruling then be passed by the U.S. courts, you know, that's prompted our involvement in, in the amicus brief. And so what did this involve? Who, who reached out to whom? And you know, can you take us through the steps of our involvement here? Certainly. Well, look, from case to case, AMA's role may differ. But at the end of the day, AMA is either putting forward or lending weight to a legal argument. In this case, um, we were contacted by Gibson Dunn to participate in the amicus brief 
for Alma Garvey. And essentially, we have worked closely with Brian and his colleagues to put forth both the amicus brief and a second argument that went through last month, which Brian perhaps could give some additional um, detail on. But again, the issue is that um, we're either lending weight to an argument or we're putting one forward. I mean, just to expand on that a little bit, I think in this context, having a group like AIMA participate is, is very helpful and it gives a perspective to the court that might not otherwise be there. Based on the commission's decision of the order in which it has brought these cases, at the outset of this case, the only parties were the Securities and Exchange Commission giving its theory. And its theory, as we said, covers or could be read extremely broadly anyone in the business of buying and selling. And the only other theory in there was Mr. Al Garby's. So in a case like this, it's, it's very important for industry to, to come up and tell the court what the implications of the ruling might be and to give the court background on how the statute works. AMA could really explain to the court how the broader Exchange Act and how the broader securities laws play in with the dealer definition and how the commission's theory would have a much broader impact across the industry. And that's why these briefs like this are so important. One of the things I want to raise here, because I think it's relevant to both what Brian just mentioned and the case overall, is the fact that there really hasn't been much attention given to this case, much as there was in the way of Blazek, which again, we'll get to. But at the end of the day, there hasn't been the kind of focus that you would expect there would be where such a dramatic rewrite of the dealer definition is being attempted. And, you know, sometimes getting involved where there's not a bright light being shined on something is precisely why you should. Should the SEC or any other party be allowed to regulate in the shadows? And that's, in fact, what's being attempted here. And so, Susan, does AMA often get asked to be involved in these types of amicus briefs? Or is this the first of its kind? You've mentioned one other, and we'll get to that. But presuming our position, you know, we would be be asked quite a lot about something like this, right? AMA has been asked since the Blazek amicus brief process. And Blazek was the first of its kind for AMA. Um, It had not gotten involved to, to this degree previously. But again, the facts and circumstances of what's being argued need to be weighed carefully. There are, of course, many opportunities where AMA would be asked if it wants to participate. And there have been a number of opportunities where it's asked, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily appropriate or that the circumstances would have a profound impact on the industry. You really do have to weigh out what's being argued. So sticking to the Al Garby case then, Brian, um, what are the latest developments regarding this? So the briefing in the Al Garby case itself has completed. The SEC filed its briefs. Mr. Al Garby filed his. And AMA and other amici have filed their briefs in that case. Now, recently, there is um, a second case that is coming up. So I mentioned that Alma Garvey is the first case in the commission's kind of dealer enforcement initiative. The commission has actually filed many cases across the country citing the opinion in Alma Garvey, saying this, the dealer definition is so broad, therefore we can go after others and attempt to make them register. So there is a second case also in the 11th Circuit 
that is coming up on appeal. And Gibson Dunn, we represent the defendant in that case. And we recently asked the 11th Circuit, the Court of Appeals, to consolidate both of those cases, to hear the Almagarby case and to hear the Keener case together. And that motion is still pending. So what happens then if the case is decided out of favor despite you know, meaningful concerns that we have raised? It really depends what the court does and how it decides it. The court in a case like Almagarby has a lot of options in terms of deciding the case. It could adopt the SEC statutory interpretation. It could adopt the statutory theory that, that AIMA put forward, or there are a number of other grounds on which the court could rule. Mr. Almagarby, for example, raises a fair notice defense, a due process constitutional defense. A ruling there might help him or others in a similar situation in an enforcement action, but wouldn't necessarily move how the word dealer is defined under the Exchange Act. So again, it really just depends on, on, on how the court decides it and on what grounds the court picks to decide it. And do we have a sense in terms of timing as to when we're likely to hear the next um, installment of this saga? These are always difficult to tell. Um, the, as I said, the briefing in Al-Mugarby was was recently completed about a month or two ago. You're probably looking at a decision, I would say within the next year, I think you'll see a decision in that case. And that's not the end game, or is that the end game? Like, what if that was not to work in our favor again? Would would we then have an opportunity to escalate that? Would that go to the U.S. Supreme Court, for example? So there are places to go depending on what the court rules. So there are really two options after the court issues its decision in Al-Mugarby. The parties could ask for something called rehearing en banc. So that is where the entire Court of Appeals would rehear the case. So right now, in your normal, typical appeal, what happens is an appellate court, a U.S. federal appellate court, assigns three judges from the court to hear the case. That's called a panel. And the panel will issue a decision resolving it. And that's what you'll see in al Mugarby. That'll be the first decision. It'll be a panel decision. The parties could then ask the entire court, every judge on the 11th Circuit, to sit and to rehear the case. Um, those are discretionary. The court does not have to grant that, but it could if it thinks the issue is important or if it thinks the panel made a mistake. That's one option. Second option is the parties could also ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. They could file for um, a, a petition of writ of certiorari. Um, again, that's completely in the Supreme Court's discretion. It doesn't there's no right to have your appeal heard by the court in this instance. It would be asking the court to exercise its discretion to hear the case. Yep, so clearly a, a lot at stake. Amos Next Generation Manager Forum, now in its 10th year, returns to London on Tuesday the 16th of May. The forum provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and the development of peer networking for senior individuals at alternative asset management businesses managing up to $500 million in hedge and private credit assets. Throughout the afternoon, speakers will discuss Next Generation Managers 10 years on, the war for talent, how to acquire and keep it, ESG, implementation and non-negotiables, and investor relations, retention and maintenance. Register today to learn more from the stellar speaker lineup and engage and network with colleagues both old and new. We look forward to welcoming you. And Susan, coming to you now, as mentioned, AMA has been involved in a prior amicus brief. What can you tell us about this case? Certainly. 
Well, that case is referred to as the Blazek case. And in that circumstance, the government was attempting an unorthodox use of a criminal statute that was meant to protect property, such as munitions, for the purpose of insider trading and wire fraud charges. So the case had garnered surprisingly little public attention, despite having profound implications for the investment industry. And it put the legitimate investment research process at risk. Equally, it opened the door to insider trading prosecution without requiring the longstanding personal benefits test, also known as DIRCS. And it would establish broad potential criminal liability for insider trading beyond any civil liability for the same conduct. Obviously, this was all a concern to Ema. And again, there seems to be a correlation there, or maybe it's just me, that they've singled out a case that would be somewhat below the radar to try and fit um, you know, this, this angle around insider trading. Um, so what would have been the consequences then, Susan, if the ruling had been different? Certainly. Well, let's back up a little bit to the ruling. So recently... The case, the convictions were overturned and they were overturned after going all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, The Supreme Court then remanded the case back to the Second Circuit, which had made the initial decision to reconsider it in light of another case's decision. And that case was referred to as the Kelly case. It's otherwise more commonly known known as Bridgegate. Essentially, the the government was attempting to use Title 18 and a unique definition of property in that case, too, related to traffic flow. In any case, when the Supreme Court returned the case to the Second Circuit, they did so based on the decision in Kelly. So in the final decision recently, and that's in the end of December when the final decision was released, the Second Circuit Appeals Court found the government's use of Title 18 to be in error, which is not surprising given the way it was remanded. So it was consistent with the Supreme Court's interpretation in Kelly. Now, that being said, the majority judges, since they weren't discussing all of the merits that had been brought up in the amicus briefs, as well as the arguments the defense had made, the judges also issued a detailed opinion to discuss why why the court's prior reasoning was both flawed and problematic. So all of the discussion that we had on impact it could have for the legitimate research process. The opinion itself made a persuasive argument for why the long-held personal benefits test must be satisfied in an insider trading case, and it stressed the need for clear rules on insider trading for the sake of market efficiency. So essentially, the case as far as AMA is involved was completed. There were additional conspiracy charges that were remanded. But at the end of the day, it was decided based on an error in interpreting property under Title 18. It wasn't decided based on the arguments that were made. However, this detailed opinion goes a long way towards supporting other cases and as well dissuading the potential for the use of Title 18 in attempting to prosecute insider trading. Again, Title 18 has a much lower threshold to prove guilt than the civil statutes that are in place and normally used, which include a personal benefits test. I hope that's helpful. Helps very much. And thank you for that. In a similar question then that I put to Brian about Al Mugarby, is is that it then? You've mentioned that the final decision has been made, but so there's no more room for appeal of this decision? And is that then, does that conclude AIM as part in this matter? 
it concludes Amos part in the, the case as it exists right now. So the, the process is essentially exhausted, other than, of course, the conspiracy charges that are unrelated to Amos' involvement. Now, that being said, that doesn't prevent the government from perhaps reviving the case under a different form of prosecution. Um, and there, have been, there has been some chatter related to that. But it, look, at the end of the day, the reasons for getting involved remain the same. Should this case or another like it emerge, and have such profound potential implications for the industry, it certainly would be something to consider getting involved in. Indeed. And AIMA members can read up on both of these cases, on the ongoing Al Mugarby case, which AIMA plays as part with an amicus brief, and on the conclusion to the Blazik case. You can you can read more about that on AIMA's website. Uh, Susan, so AIMA's advocacy efforts continue to grow and influence across the U.S. So what other work then can you tell our listeners about that we're engaged in? Certainly. Look, there are many different aspects to advocacy work. Of course, the best known is engagement of regulators or other officials on specific regulations, so rule proposals or other industry issues. There also are circumstances where a trade association might be a party to litigation, and that's different than this, where you're providing weight to an argument through an amicus brief. You know, whether it's a lead plaintiff in a lawsuit or as part of a concerned group. But at the end of the day, the majority of the advocacy remains in that segment that we're most known for. So getting involved in feedback on rule proposals or providing information, insights and opinions to the commission or others on how a an issue in the industry may impact the participants, how potential lawmaking may influence things going forward, and certainly any time there are unforeseen consequences to regulation. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I mean, we could spend literally hours on this, as no doubt you have done, Brian and Susan, but many thanks for uh, shedding a light on something, as you have said, Susan, is something that has really gone under the radar for some time and such important consequence, um, both um, the work um, that Brian has done at Gibson Dunn and the amicus brief that Emma has been involved in. Brian, no doubt we'll hear from you again to hear the latest installment of the Al McGarby case. Thank you for your time, for joining us on The Long Short. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. Susan, thanks as always. Thank you. And you can learn more about AIMA's advocacy, the what, the how, and where AIMA represents the alternative investment industry, not just in the US and the work of Susan and our colleagues there, but globally by going to our website, AIMA.org, or following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. The Long Short was brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AIMA.org. Thanks for listening.